Welcome back to Balagan. I'm Kobe Cohen. When Israelis are going to another round of elections, a good question is, what will they vote for? Or a better question is, what are the burning topics that Israeli parties will not talk about, and as it seems to be, the Israeli voters are ignoring all. To answer these questions, I'm happy to have Mr. Ido Dembin, Executive Director of MOLAD, the Center for the Renewal of Israeli Democracy, an independent, non-partisan Israeli think tank. So Ido, welcome to Balagan. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And let's start with a self-introduction. Tell us a little bit about yourself and about MOLAD. Okay, so I'll try to keep it short and sweet about myself and maybe extend a bit about MOLAD. Uh, so as you mentioned, my name is Ido. I'm the executive director at MOLAD, which is a think tank uh, based in Israel and Jerusalem. Uh, before I joined MOLAD, I worked as the Israel director for ITREC, which is a nonprofit based in New York. Before that, I went to school in New York at Columbia. That's where I did my uh, graduate degree. Before that, I worked at the Israeli mission to the OECD and UNESCO uh, in Paris. And I even worked as a lawyer back in the day at Herzog in Israel. I studied law in Tel Aviv, and uh, that, that's kind of the extent of my uh, professional aspects. I also write and uh, lecture about American politics, mostly to Israelis, for obvious reasons. And I am married to the lovely Shai, and we live together in, in Israel. We got back here after two years in New York, or three years in New York. We got here two years ago. As for Molad, which is the more interesting part of this session, um, it's an independent and nonpartisan Israeli think tank. The idea and the premise behind Molad is that there is a need for someone to combine a realistic approach to the political and, and geopolitical challenges uh, that Israel faces, which are complex and complicated and multifaceted, and that there isn't such a discussion today. Um, and more importantly, maybe that the liberal camp in Israel is losing the proverbial war of ideas, not because it's not trying, but because it's not even trying in the right game. In other words, it's almost as if the right wing in Israel is playing chess and the left wing is playing checkers. Um, and 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 right wing is the one who gets to dictate which game we're playing, which puts the left in a weak position. Um, moreover, our premise is that the left and center in Israel have either shied away from from having an opinion, and when they had an opinion, shied away from expressing it, and in turn, exchanged that for either trying to pretend to be kind of like the right, but without the corruption charges, right? Like Hiltzok did it, Gantz did it, or they just try to shy away from being left-wingers or liberals and instead present them themselves as something that they're not, which is like centrist. And, and, and that isn't to say that centrists as an audience don't exist in Israel, but that the leaders of the center-left used to have ideologies and used to have uh, I guess, a sense of honor about these positions, which they are lacking in the past, I want to say decade or so, but it's probably even longer than that. I would um, also so say spine, by the way. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. You're right. Uh, ideological spine is sadly missing. Um, but we can elaborate on that later on if you want. So now Israel is facing another round of election. Actually, it's a new round because we already have a function, so-called function in Knesset and a so-called function in government <laughs> uh, to some mm -hmm. extent. Um, 
So it's the first round for this uh, Knesset, but it's the fifth round of election in less than three years. Um, right. What are the topics discussed in, you know, in the Israeli sphere around these elections? What are they, if, if I'm an Israeli voter, what am I going to vote for at the moment? Good question. Um, I suspect that in ways that are not dissimilar to the U.S., the really the only question hovering above everything else is this referendum on Benjamin Netanyahu. You're either voting for Netanyahu or for Netanyahu's bloc, or you're voting against Netanyahu. Um, and there are a few questions that the media and the politicians deal with that stem from that. But surprisingly, these are not questions of ideology. These are questions like, will he or won't he get 61 seats? Should uh, this party and that party run together to avoid falling under the threshold? Is it okay to cooperate in a coalition government with Itamar Ben-Gvir and or with the Arab parties, uh, where the former is for some reason more legitimate than the latter, which I can't quite bring myself to understand why. But these are the questions being discussed at the moment. So the Israelis are not voting eventually for a policy. They're voting for or against Netanyahu, for or against being with a co- in a coalition with the Arabs, or with Itamar Ben-Gvir, who is the, for people who doesn't know who Itamar Ben-Gvir, he's the Jewish extremist, I would say. Uh, the extremist of the extremist in Israel at the moment, because uh, even the Likud party who legitimized him turned, you know, a little more to the right when it comes to the things we're talking about. I mean, I, I dare take it a step further and say that the ideological differences between the Likud and Benville are not quite as clear as they maybe used to be. So Benville is the heir in some ways, the political heir to Rabbi Meir Kahana and his party from 30 something years ago. Yeah, from 1984. And so, oh, well, so it's, uh, yeah, it's 40 years ago almost now. Yeah. And when when Kahana was uh, elected to the Knesset, he was elected as a, as a one representative when the threshold was just 1%. When he was elected and he would give speeches in the Knesset floor or on the Knesset floor, all parties, or almost all parties, including the Likud, led by Itzhak Shamir at the time, who no one can say was not a right-winger, um, would step out in, pro- in protest. Whereas today in Israeli politics, you read about how Netanyahu invited Ben Gvir and Bessalus Smotrich, who is his partner uh, for the leadership of the extreme right in Israel, to meet in, in a mansion in Caesarea and discuss how to work together towards this election. This is quite a development. It's really hard to express just how severe, in my mind, the legitimacy that Ben Gvir is receiving from Netanyahu is. Uh, but I guess for Netanyahu, desperate times call for desperate measures. Yeah, and, and as it seems, Netanyahu has no boundaries, especially now when his trials are uh, running. And he will do everything to win. I mean, there is an American sentence that winning is not the most important thing. It's the only important thing. And it seems that the Israeli right wing, and especially Benjamin Netanyahu, are uh, working with that ideology. While on the other hand, the center left seems to be 
lacking. You you said that you know the center left is uh, playing uh, chess while the right wing is playing checkers. I would say, by the way, backgammon. But uh, <laughs> but um, <laughs> it's the more uh, Israeli thing for sure. Definitely on the beach. <laughs> oh. But if Israel is, if that's what they are voting on, let's talk about what the Israeli sphere is ignoring. I mean, what are the burning topics for Israel that should be discussed that are not being discussed on the media and uh, by the politicians? And why is that happening? So I think, you know, to some extent, I guess almost every country where there is a rising populist wave uh, is is dealing with these questions, right? Whether it's because there's just too much information running around, and a lot of it is disinformation and misinformation, or if it's because people just don't, don't have the time and energy to deal with it, they just prefer to kind of turn a blind eye to it and just be like, you know, whatever happens, happens. And especially in a country like Israel, where you've, like you mentioned, this is the fifth election cycle, and Odds are we're going to have a sixth one as well if Netanyahu doesn't get his way because the chances for the center-left to form a government are fairly slim if they don't turn to the Arab parties, which they currently seem to not be interested in doing. But so the things that ought to be discussed are issues of policy. Um, it could be anything from legalizing uh, gay marriage to... Uh, public transportation on the Shabbat, which is currently maybe slightly in discussion, but only at the level of like headlines, not actual policy research and opinion research. And definitely economical issues, which some parties are trying to kind of uh, express some opinions and, and, and have a platform on the matter, but I heard that Benjamin is, Netanyahu is strong in that field now. He has a lot of uh, offers uh, to the, go- you to know, the, the government. Amazing, the amazing thing about Netanyahu is that this is the, by the way, this is the like the prophet of right-wing economics in Israel in many ways. He is like Israel. Of the neoliberal uh, policies. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, like, you know, Naftali Bennett and Moshe Feiglin, who tried to run on, on similar platforms in recent elections, they didn't invent this. Netanyahu is the guy who really brought the, not the policy, because policy in Israel has been capitalistic before Netanyahu yeah. came about. It has been so, so since, I'd say, the mid-80s. You know, Shimon Peres was a capitalist, right? Let's not, let's yeah. not uh, ignore that. But Netanyahu was really the one who brought forth the messaging of, of how we need to privatize, we need to incentivize free economy, in a free market economy and and reduce taxes, et cetera, and never tax the rich, but you know um, and now, in this election, Netanyahu came up with this package of incentives to the economy, which, to the naked eye, might seem like the most socialist package brought forth by any politician in Israel for a while now. Uh, but somehow it's okay if Netanyahu does it. But, but that's the thing, is no one is actually talking about that. Like Even Netanyahu's yeah. attempt at an at economic-based campaign that sought to kind of use the inflation, which is a worldwide trend, against the current government, that basically failed, and the, there was a guy that he was trying to push as his candidate, so to speak, uh, to run in the internal primary of the Likud party for the Knesset, and he failed miserably as well. 
Um, and, and like ever since that happened, he's completely out and all that discussion is out. And of course, the number one thing that isn't really talked about is Israel's security, which in turn revolves around a the Palestinian issue, which is completely not discussed and kind of ignored. Uh, or if you have a party like uh, Benny Gantz's party, you know, the treatment of it is basically like, well, we'll do what we can, uh, which is not saying anything at all. Or the Iran issue where you basically have one opinion in Israel, which is the agreement is bad and we must object to it, even though no one is really offering up any alternative, right? Like politicians would say, this is a horrible agreement. It would uh, uh, promote Iran to the threshold of uh, nuclear power. But then when asked, okay, so what should we do then? You get kind of like really nothing, right? It's we should object to it. How would you object to it? Would you attack in Iran? Would you bomb Iran? Um, what exactly is the way forward if not an agreement? And you never get quite an answer to that. And it always goes back to, well, Netanyahu or not Netanyahu, right? Netanyahu was the guy who during his tenure, uh, Trump decided to remove the U.S. and withdraw it from the agreement, which Netanyahu credits himself as a, as a success and the left you know, says is a horrible mistake. And no one really says why, even there, right? Like, no one's really saying, was Netanyahu right to do this or not? Just that he did. I would say that nobody is asking if Israel, you know, everybody, Israel is like to threat that we're going to attack in Iran. I actually had a conversation around it yesterday that I think that uh, Israeli politicians are literally playing chicken around it. Even when Netanyahu came, you know, in 2015 right. on March, it wasn't just it was to break in front of the house, you know, here in March of 2015. But it was for internal use only, because even Netanyahu is playing chicken and was trying to uh, push the Americans to act against Iran, but knew, and Israeli politicians will not admit it, that eventually Israel probably doesn't have the power to really attack in Iran in an effective way, uh, I would say. But the question is if Iran should be the topic. I mean, the Palestinian, I would say the Palestinian problem is a way more bigger threat in a way to Israel's future and, and will have a bigger impact on Israel's, uh, how Israel will look like in the future. So how can it be that a topic like, you know, the Palestinian issue was being neglected to the side? To be clear, by the way, I'm, you know, when I say anything at all about the Iran issue, I'm not pretending to know all there is to know, right? Like, yeah. I'm definitely not an expert on Iran. Right. I don't speak Persian. Farsi, but I am informed enough and have read enough of Israel's leading uh, military experts and security experts who say themselves that Netanyahu, while he had a massive success in, in making the Iran issue a leading issue in Israel, this wasn't the case before him. And according to many security experts, it shouldn't be the case even today. In other words, Iran doesn't necessarily reflect an, exist an existential threat to Israel, whereas the continuing conflict with the Palestinians and the military occupation of the West Bank, um, and to some extent the military, I don't want to say occupation because that's not true, but control of Gaza, 
those have a bigger potential in them to threaten Israel's existence as a Jewish and democratic state, to put it that way. Yeah. And that issue is not discussed. And, and to the question of why, some of it can be attributed to the relative quiet of the past decade or so, uh, at least in the West Bank. You know, uh, Israel went on, what is it, three, four operations in Gaza since 20... Since 2005, I can count like six or seven, I think, oh, yeah. maybe. Um, Almost every two had, years you have something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, every two years on average with, with increasingly ridiculous names. Um, yeah. But even still, that is perceived as, okay, this is Hamas, whereas in the West Bank, it's fairly quiet. And many Israelis have defaulted to this kind of apathetic position where maybe this is as good as it can get, right? Like, it's not that people don't, and, and this is true according to Molad's uh, research as well, and, and the surveys that we have done and are doing at the moment, actually, which is to say that many Israelis generally support two states. You know, if you brought before them tomorrow a referendum on two states that will bring about the end of the conflict, most Israelis would still vote yes. But at the same time, many, many Israelis, uh, mostly such that identify as centrist in their opinion, and also some soft right-wing voters would say that, you know, I support two states in principle, but there's no way in hell that's happening, right? Because it's not safe for Israel or because it's too late to evacuate the settlements and withdraw from the West Bank, just too many of them. Or well, the as with the Palestinians. It, exactly. As Eud Barak once put it, there's no partner. And so that brings about this feeling uh, for politicians in Israel that even if this is a very important topic, it, it's one that maybe is not politically smart to engage with. And that breeds you know, a void that no one seems too eager to fill. You know, another topic that is brought up in a way, but it comes from the racial uh, perspective, is the Arabs' part in Israeli democracy, or the Israeli-Arab part mm -hmm. in, in Israeli democracy. I want to put them together with the, with the ultra-Orthodox sector, because that's also a big part of the Israeli society, that for mm -hmm. some reason is not even being discussed. You know, they, once the ultra-Orthodox uh, were legitimized, I would say, by the right wing, um, they are not being portrayed, for example, as non-Zionist. Everybody's saying that they don't want a non-Zionist party in their, uh, yeah. in their, in their uh, coalition. So that's why, for example, Benny Gantz said no uh, to the joint list. Even though I, I'm not sure if Mansour Abbas from Ram Party is such a big Zionist. <laughs> but on the other hand, the ultra-Orthodox parties are non-Zionist also. So right. what is the conversation in Israeli society around, you know, the Israeli Arabs and then we'll go to the ultra-Orthodox? Oh, wow. That's a lot to unpack. Um... I know. <laughs> <laughs> not making it easier. Uh, I think it's a very different discussion from the get-go. And to put it very bluntly, the reason is that one of the sectors that you're mentioning is Jewish and the other is not. What I mean by that is the 
Palestinian citizens of Israel, also known in Israel as Israeli Arabs or some other nickname that feels less foreign to Israelis or makes them le- feel like less uncomfortable. Uh, Israeli Palestinians. <laughs> yeah, it's it's hard. You know, for many Israelis, it's like when you talk about footballers or basketball players and you'd say like, uh, the Belgian Dutch player, right? And people are like, well, that makes sense. You know, he has a mom from Belgium and a dad from the Netherlands. If you say Israeli-Palestinians, people are like, wait, 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 you can't, that's not, you can't do that. But anyway, the Arab parties in Israel, I should note that even talking about them as this one block is a mistake because there are almost 2 million Arabs in Israel with very different views and thoughts and lives and circumstances. But if we were to divide them just into the two parties, right, the joint list, which is a list of three parties, and Ram, the Islamist party. Um, so Ram was a member of the coalition. And as far as we're aware, the big reason why there were members of the coalition is because Netanyahu essentially made it okay. Um, he when he them. tried to, yes, exactly. He tried to seek their approval and, and, and get them to join. And then the left center saw this and was like, okay, well, if, if he can do it, then we can, but we can't do it with the joint list because the joint list was never given this public legitimacy. Even though in many ways, Ram is the, by far the more extremist of the two. That became an issue in and of itself. And as far as I'm aware, the center left in Israel so far, and this goes to part of the things that I mentioned as Molad's raison d'etre, if you will, The center-left, instead of having their own views on the matter and kind of saying, well, you know, the joint list represents hundreds of thousands of of Arabs in Israel who have a legitimate say and stake in this country, just basically decided to do what Netanyahu did. So if Netanyahu doesn't think they're legitimate, then we don't think they're legitimate either. And that, in turn, as it seems from the polling in Israel right now, is causing many Arab voters to say, well, if that's the case, we're just not going to vote. And if we're not going to vote, then the center-left is going to lose. So it's kind of, it's a weird behavior in terms of strategy that I'm not quite understanding from the center-left. Whereas the right in Israel, even though they wanted the Arabs' favor, at this point, they are well aware that a scare tactic and fear-mongering campaign based on, oh my God, the Arabs are coming to kill us, is fairly efficient. Um, and has proven itself very efficient in 2015 and in 2019. And and so when Netanyahu doesn't have any problem with saying that if Lapid is turning to collaborate with uh, Mansour Abbas, he's effectively turning to collaborate with Mahmoud Abbas, otherwise yeah. known as Abu Mazen. Abu Mazen. The, the head of the, of the Palestinian Authority. The president of yes. the Palestinian Authority. So, exactly. That's about the Arabs. And I want to talk about the ultra-Orthodox parties in Israel, and actually the ultra-Orthodox society, because there is no discussion at the moment around how they can join the workforce, if they need or they don't need to serve the army, or maybe do some sort of another uh, civic service, you know, uh, mm-hmm. for the people, and how they can uh, join the general effort, and I would say integrate to some extent, in Israeli society. Is that something that should be brought up? I mean, in the elections or shouldn't be brought up? 
how is it being discussed today in the in the Israeli sphere? Once upon a time, this was a topic on which governments rise and fall. But it seems like due to the political circumstance of the moment where the the ultra orthodox seem like I don't know why, by the way, because they've basically pledged their allegiance to Netanyahu, but they are viewed by some parts of the Israeli center left as the key to bringing Netanyahu down. In other words, the basic idea is that if uh, Benny Gantz in particular, if Netanyahu doesn't get 61 seats, then the ultra-Orthodox, for fear of being left out of government again, as they were in the previous government, in the Lapid Bennett government, would break ranks with Netanyahu and join the center-left. To, to get that as an option, you have to really restrain yourself from criticizing the ultra-Orthodox in many ways. And so there are some discussions, as I mentioned, for instance, the issue of public transportation on Shabbat. Um, but that's coming more from like Merav Michaeli, who is not only the Minister of Transportation, so she's in charge of this, but also the leader of the Labour Party, which is not doing so amazingly well in the polls, and she's under pressure to unite with Meretz, which is one of the things that people are actually talking about, even though no one really yeah. is really talking about what these parties represent, except that they're on the left in very general strokes, uh, broad strokes. And so to your question, yeah, I think it's kind of amazing that no one's really talking about the fact that the, these parties don't even define themselves as non-Zionist, or, or they do, but no one's really talking about it, right? And they're perceived because they represent Jews and because they have been members of most governments in the past 20, 30 years. It's almost actually it's since 1977, they've been official uh, members of almost every coalition. Yeah. With the exception I, of, I two, think... of two governments the, the Sharon government at the beginning in uh, 2003. And the second mm -hmm. one was actually um, Netanyahu's uh, mm -hmm. government, first government when he came back, when he went yeah, with 20... the Brothers Alliance of uh, Lapid and the... <laughs> yeah, in 2013. In um, yes. uh, that, that, that didn't end very well. Um, and so for, for them, it's, their interest is to be in power in the coalition because they need the money. Uh, and the only way they have sway over resources is if they are partaking. Which, you know, to some extent, Mansour Abbas, as a representative of the Arab population in Israel, he understood it. You know, that being in power gives him the opportunity to actually influence policy in a way that matters. Now, it's very early to see whether or not this, this would have an impact in electoral sense as well. But it's really hard to argue with Abbas making a historical shift in the way that Arab politicians play the game in Israel. But so, you know, it, it's still, as opposed to the ultra-Orthodox party, just because Abbas is willing to play doesn't mean that everyone is willing to let him play. Uh, whereas yeah. the ultra-Orthodox, everyone is fairly eager to get them in government as long as it guarantees power. Oh, of course. <laughs> so, so I want to ask how, Mulad, um, how is your organization comes, you know, I would say, in the public sphere, and what do you bring to the politicians or to the policymakers in order to mm -hmm. change things in the Israeli, I would say, uh, public uh, sphere? So the main thing about Molad is that it is a think tank. It's not necessarily a 
immediate policy oriented or lobbying organization right we don't run between chambers of one minister and the next and that isn't to say that we don't want to impact and influence politicians even though we've seen in the past three or so years that one can become a member of Knesset and just as easily you know uh, get pushed out of the limelight and go back to normal life because they're the change in members of Knesset is so rapid with these uh, recurring elections that it's kind of a weird situation to be an elected public official. But Mulad's stance is that we want to inform public discourse and discussion in Israel through uh, quality research, analysis, and opinion uh, that are in turn uh, collected and, and performed and done by uh, leading public intellectuals all Israeli, uh, whether it's uh, folks like uh, Asaf, Professor Asaf Sharon, who is our co-founder, or the other co-founder, Dr. Avner Inbar, who are both you know, brilliant researchers, if I do say so myself, uh, or if it's Omer Einav or Anand Degani, who are working today to promote our researches, including on the issue of security in, in a two-state reality, and on the irreversibility of the settlements, or uh, the reversibility of them, in fact, and or on the uh, progress of the Oslo Accords and the peace process, which Dr. Degani has been invested in uh, through our podcast, which sadly is only available in Hebrew at the moment, uh, called yeah, the Oslo podcast, podcast. By the way, I, thank I you. It. It's called the Sket Oslo, which is a yes. joke on Heskem and Sket, which is a podcast in Hebrew. Exactly, Heskem is agreement. So. Or accords. You got you got you got it perfectly. I am still struggling to find a way to translate it into English, but <laughs> but but through all of this, what we're trying to do is effectively shift public opinion and the opinion of policymakers and politicians and also young leadership. You know, we would go to pre-IDF prep schools, uh, 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 high academia, um, and even Facebook and Twitter, and I don't know. Maybe one day we'll open a, a TikTok if need be to disseminate this research and, and our analysis. So, I'm sorry, we are running out of time and we have a lot more to cover. So I can definitely agree, I mean, we can definitely agree that it's the first but not last uh, recording that we're going to have in the future. Um, and I okay. really want to thank you for joining me today and enlightening our audience. And just to let our audience know, we're going to add your website uh, link to the episode description and on social media, of course. And if there is one last word, a couple of last words that you want to, you know, uh, share with us, then it's your uh, it's your stage. <laughs> uh, well, first and foremost, it's been a pleasure. Uh, I feel like uh, we didn't have enough time to talk about everything, but the best conversations are such that leave you wanting more, right? So. If there's anything I can leave you with, I guess, is this. There is a, I don't want to say war, but definitely a battle. Um, Joe Biden said that there was a battle for the soul of America. There is definitely a battle going on for the soul of Israel. Um, and I truly believe that both sides to this battle want what they perceive to be what's best for Israel. What I happen to think is best for Israel is a return to the original liberal values that informed Zionism, um, as Benjamin Zev Herzl and David Ben-Gurion saw it. Whereas others might not necessarily agree with that or may have different interpretations of what that actually means. 
Malad's work tries to deal with all of these conflicts. It tries to answer to what Zionism is and what it isn't. I, even, even me stating myself to be a Zionist is to some people offensive because they identify Zionism with the occupation and with xenophobia and misogyny, which I do not stand for. Um, and at the same time, we're trying to inform people what it is. Uh, we're also trying to inform people why we think that the Zionist approach, the security-based approach to Israel's future must revolve around returning to discussion on policy and not on immediate short-term results. It's, it's not about Netanyahu, even though it's very tempting to make it about him, and even though I would never vote for him personally. It's not just about him. He's one man. It's, it's much bigger. It's about what we want Israel to look like, what we want it to be, where we want its alliance with the U.S. to go, by the way which we, we didn't get a chance to discuss. And to that effect, the only way to truly discuss these things and make a, a decision that is based on knowledge and is informed and not based on slogans and misinformation is to talk about it and read about it and research it and analyze it. And that's what we're trying to do at Molad. And, you know, hopefully we can spread the message and you allowing me this stage to talk even so briefly about it is something that I'm definitely grateful for and I hope to do it again same here it was a pleasure having you and we'll talk again in the near future thank you very much Ido and thank good you. luck for the state of Israel and the people of Israel in the upcoming election <laughs> amen to that I hope you enjoyed today's episode and wanted to thank you for joining me If you like my podcast, feel free to rank it and share it with others. I also invite you to subscribe to my podcast so you will get updates when a new episode is on the air. And last but not least, I invite you to check my website, Balagan, www.balagan.ltd, for more content about Israel's history and politics. Bye for now, and have a great day.